0: Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where usually we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. But sometimes when we go through chronological order, uh, we come across movies that aren't necessarily horror, but... Are important to the genrelogical journey we are taking. <laughs> uh my name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you so much for joining us on one of these uh horror adjacent episodes.
1: Yes. Um this is the first horror adjacent episode we're doing since we kind of switched format on these. Uh so
0: previously they were bonus episodes once a month, uh, but we have since integrated them into the regular cadence of the show um hence why we're not saying it's a bonus episode it's just part of a regular episode
1: yes and we're we're sort of covering them in chronological order just because it it makes it a lot easier for us honestly yeah uh, with covering this stuff on the show how are you doing ben i'm doing pretty good today um we've kind of had like a bit of a i want to say like muted or relaxed weekend here at castle scream scene um, in Canada, the day before we recorded this, uh, it was Remembrance Day. We always like go out and go to a ceremony. And, uh, then we kind of, for the rest of the day yesterday, just sort of sat around and took things easy and watched, uh, a studio Ghibli movie called Whisper of the Heart that I hadn't seen yet and, uh, really enjoyed. had good cat content. This is true. So today just, you know, feeling a little quiet, a little muted, uh, but things are, are probably going to pick up in energy uh, here with tonight's movie.
0: I don't know. It's uh, it's not a musical, Ben. Not yet. Yeah, as much as I would love to be watching the musical version, tonight we are watching The Little Shop of Horrors from 1960, directed by Roger Corman.
1: Yes. Um. So you kind of, you know, already stated this, but you're familiar with the musical.
0: That's the only connection to this movie that i have i've only seen the musical i've always wanted to see the original
1: and like you've only seen the the movie musical like you haven't seen the musical on stage or anything yeah like that. that's
0: a good clarification uh yeah only the movie Rick moran steve martin you yeah. know that stuff
1: did you kind of grow up with that movie no oh okay i just feel like your mom makes like references to it all the time so that's why i asked She
0: also makes references to arsenic and old lace, and yet I had never seen
1: it all the way through. That's fair. Your mom has a very, like, quotes-based sense of humor. (laughs) I wonder where I get it from. So, The Little Shop of Horrors, as the original film was known, is pretty famous. Uh, It's pretty notorious. Uh, It's pretty significant in, like the overall story of Roger Corman's career in some ways and yet kind of not in others. It's almost like a a bit of a weird hiccup or a last hurrah. There's a few different ways you can kind of look at it. But it's it's, you know, very well known horror adjacent movie. It made sense for us to cover it. Exactly. And like I knew going in that this wasn't going to rank like obviously the musical later in the 80s was also not going to rank. Although how much there is a ratio of horror to comedy in the musical depends on which ending uh, you're watching. Um, but the original film is much more, you know, comedy than horror. Even if the comedy is very um, black comedy, mm-hmm. uh, it's a very
0: gallows humor,
1: gallows humor. Yeah. Where little shop of horrors comes from is uh bucket of blood. And if we cast our minds back to Bucket of Blood, we watched that in episode 281, and that movie did rank. It ranked at number 84 after filming wrapped on Bucket of Blood. Uh, this would be back in 1959. Roger Corman realized two things. The first was that shooting Bucket of Blood had been one of the most enjoyable experiences of his career. Uh, You know, just the fact of this, like, horror comedy atmosphere. It just was a lot of fun to do. Sure. The second was that since he had the sets rented for a week, uh, you know, he shot Bucket of Blood in five days from Monday to Friday, um, which at the time was like, if I'm remembering correctly, was kind of like a I bet you I can't shoot a movie in five days situation. Yeah. Um, He realized that technically because of the way that these rentals worked, he would still have access to these sets over the weekend as well, because the next production wouldn't come in until Monday. Could he shoot an entire extra movie in the two days remaining that he had?
0: (laughs) Fascinating. Does he have a script at this point of realization? No. Okay, so he's doing full pre-production in this weekend as well.
1: No, no, no. So okay. he he kind of has this realization before he's shooting Bucket of Blood. Okay. Like pre-production for this movie happens while Bucket of Blood is shooting, <laughs> essentially.
0: So still a condensed schedule. Oh, very much so. Okay,
1: Yeah. I mean, if anyone could shoot a movie in two days, it would be Roger Corman, right? Mm-hmm. The production of Little Shop of Horrors, as I kind of hinted at a little while ago, was be kind of something of a last hurrah from Corman in the sense of directing the kind of B-movie fare that he had built his career on up to this point. Mm -hmm. He would continue to produce these kind of cheap B-movies, but as we've already seen, he makes this transition to like bigger budget fare with Follow the House of Usher. Now, Little Shop of Horrors was shot before Fall of the House of Usher, uh, even though it was released after. I think that's important to note. Um, And so Corman, as a director, moves up to this higher budget category um, and doesn't ever really go back to these kinds of like super cheap movies as a director. He does continue to produce these kinds of movies for like the rest of his career.
0: Yeah, well... That leads into the Roger Corman school of directors who exactly. would be directing these while he would be producing them.
1: Yes, that is entirely <laughs> correct. So part of the reason for why kind of Corman got out of these kind of B movies was, you know, that ascension into higher budgets with Follow the House of Usher. But there was also um in and around this time a change that was happening in just like the economics of Hollywood that was about to make doing these kinds of movies, a very different economic proposition because in 1960 in January of 1960, uh, the writers guild of America and the screen actors guild both went on strike. Mm -hmm. You see, there was this new technology and it had come in and kind of disrupted the way that like the traditional distribution economics of Hollywood worked. And it meant that um, people were able to like watch things almost like on demand and like (laughs) over and over again as well and like rewatch things. And it meant that like content you had created like years ago could still be like recycled indefinitely without like any like value to you other than you know what you were originally paid for it and maybe at the time it wasn't too valuable but now it's much more valuable and isn't that kind of unfair um and so television big sort of disruptor uh in the 1950s right (laughs) um so what the result of the 1960 writers and actors strikes was was it ended the idea that when a producer bought your work you know, when they paid you for the film, they now owned the work you did for that in perpetuity. Yeah. Instead, we now had this idea of royalties Mm. in perpetuity for this work. So that, you know, if you did a TV show and they reran that TV show for years and years and years, and maybe that show's even more popular in reruns than it was originally, you'd get paid a little bit you know a couple cents on the dollar for every rerun or if the movie that you did was sold to tv and was getting shown on tv over and over again you'd get some royalties on that every time it was shown and that meant from roger corman's side of things that a movie could continue to cost its producer money long after that producer had made that movie which meant that he was going to need to kind of switch to a different business model than what he'd been doing up to now, which was the, I'm going to make a movie, it'll make money, and then I'll make the next movie on the profits of the last movie. Because now your budgeting needed to change, and your thinking about how you were financing things needed to change, because you needed to be able to pay these royalties forever. So Little Shop of Horrors was very intentionally scheduled to be shot before these new rules would go into effect.
0: Mm. We we talk a lot about Roger Corman, and we always try to acknowledge when he
1: is a little shady. You know, the thing is, is it is admirable the way he was able to get so much out of so little. Right? There's an efficiency to what he's doing that you have to admire, but you have to kind of be a little skeezy. To get that sort of efficiency as well and you have to recognize where the loopholes are and where you can take advantage of things
0: and advantage of people yes all of which is to say Roger Corman is a whole person yes which means he is not all good and not all bad
1: problematic fave <laughs> So Charles B. Griffith, who had convinced Corman to try the horror comedy format to begin with, with Bucket of Blood, um, he was kind of the natural person to start writing a script for this new idea. So he got to work on a script, you know, right away. Um, I believe all in all, it was written in three days. Wow. uh, Which is funny because it was completely rewritten three times. Like, I think there was a different version of the movie on each day. Initially... Um, The story was about a private eye investigating a music critic named Draco Cardula, (laughs) who turns out to be a vampire.
0: What? Really? With a name like
1: that? And that movie was called Cardula, (sighs) and it was on the basis of that script that the actors were cast. So... They were like, okay, who do we want to play these roles in this script? Basically drawing from like kind of the stock company of Roger Corman people, especially people who were already working on Bucket of Blood. So it could be like, hey, can you just come over for the weekend and like shoot another couple days? And so that was the script that was like sent out to actors and and so on. And uh, actor Mel Wells was going to play the main villainous role of Draco Cardula. Now, the next day... The script was totally rewritten to a different premise called Gluttony, which was going...
0: That's a better title.
1: (laughs) This was going to be about a restaurant chef who uh, cooks the customers.
0: Okay, yeah, I like this.
1: Um, The problem is you couldn't do cannibalism per production code. Oh. So...
0: Well, see, they're not eating people. They're just eating pies, Ben.
1: So Griffith <laughs> and Corman got really drunk. And uh, you know, late on the second day, Griffith kind of threw out the idea, what about a man-eating plant? And Roger said, sure. And so the next day, Griffith wrote a script called The Passionate People Eater. And that's the script that was shot and was there on the day when the actors showed up.
0: I'm glad they changed the title from that. <laughs>
1: The private eye elements from Cardula morphed into a framing narrative for the story of uh, the passionate people eater um, that is a parody of the Dragnet television series. Good. The story you are about to see is true. The names
0: have been changed to protect the innocent.
1: So if you if you don't know Dragnet, listener, there's actually probably a good chance you know things from Dragnet that have continued to be parodied in pop culture to this day, to the point where, like, people still make these references without even knowing where they're from.
0: Just like the Naked Gun franchise, you know? hmm
1: All of that. Dragnet has this very, like well-known, uh, theme song among other things. Um, Dragnet was a police procedural that ran for eight seasons from 1951 to 1959 and was revived for more seasons like many times later. But in the context of us here in 1960, that initial eight season run is what we're thinking of. The show starred, uh, series creator Jack Webb as Sergeant Joe Friday and Ben Alexander as his partner, Frank Smith, and they were detectives working for the homicide department of the LAPD. The show was a huge hit and it was highly influential. It was noted for its very serious and somber tone, its attempts at realism and accuracy, uh, not wanting to sensationalize things, as well as its depiction of the police force as dedicated professionals, which reshaped American perception of police In the second half of the 20th century from kind of the uh first half of the 20th century where they were kind of regarded as like crooked idiot bumbling buffoons who aren't your friends
0: uh it's very interesting that they started with not sensationalizing fast forward 40 years we get csi (laughs) yeah
1: for sure um but even like the sort of like accuracy ethos of dragnet like continued on into shows like law and order the thing about dragnet was like it had these very famous formulaic elements the the distinctive music the style of narration and dialogue which was very like taciturn um as well as like it had this famous opening narration on every episode about how Um, you know, the people and stories you're about to see are real and taken from the real case files, and only the names have been changed to protect the innocent, right? And that's like something that you still see variations of, um, either seriously, like on Law and Order, or in parody uh, to this day. And so all of these very distinctive things did leave Dragnet very much open to very pointed parody, right? So in Griffith's, script for this movie. Joe Friday becomes Joe Fink, and Frank Smith becomes Frank Stooley. The lead in the film's cast, playing the role of the nebbish, nerdy Seymour, was offered to Bucket of Blood star Dick Miller, uh, but he turned it down because he was like, I was in almost every scene of Bucket of Blood for like five days. I wanted a weekend, so he chose to play a supporting role In the film you know so he's still in this movie (laughs) but didn't have to shoot as much Uh, so instead the role of seymour went to actor jonathan hayes who was born jack schachter in pittsburgh in 1929 Uh, his cousin was famous jazz drummer buddy rich one of the people widely considered the best drummers of all time Uh, and schachter kind of got involved in showbiz like working as an assistant for his cousin and he had been acting in minor roles in Roger Corman movies uh, since Monster on the Ocean Floor way back in 1954, but this would be his first like lead role. Mm-hmm. The female lead of Audrey was originally written for Nancy Culp, uh, who had yet to break out as Miss Hathaway on The Beverly Hillbillies, but she turned it down, and so instead the role was cast with actress Jackie Joseph. She was born in LA in 1933 and had really only appeared in very minor roles on TV and film before this one. Now when Karjula became the passionate people eater, Mel Wells's role as the lead villain was changed to flower shop owner Gravis Mushnik. Now Wells was born Ira Melcher in the Bronx in 1924 to a Jewish family and so Gravis Mushnik takes in a lot of like turkish jewish mannerisms and things there's a very like yiddish humor sensibility about him Uh, wells himself had a phd in psychology from columbia university uh, and had worked as a clinical psychologist in hollywood before branching out as a radio dj actor writer and director
0: (laughs) interesting uh turn of events for
1: him yeah his comic sensibilities led to griffith uh, injecting a lot of Jewish humor into the script. Um, a lot of this movie has the kind of like telltale elements of Jewish humor, like, um, thumbing your nose at authority, like self-deprecating humor, things like this.
0: So a bit of a Mel Brooks sensibility. Yeah.
1: I think that's a, a good, uh, touchstone. Jewish humor really also comes out of like the vaudeville Tradition in many ways, and the cast's vaudeville bona fides were enhanced by the inclusion of Charles Griffith's grandmother in the cast, uh, Myrtle Vale. Uh, Myrtle Vale plays Seymour's mother in this film. She was born in 1888, and she started doing vaudeville when she was 15. Wow! Her big hit came in 1932 when she created the radio show Mert and Marge which starred herself and her daughter, Donna Damerill. The show was a big hit. It even got a movie adaptation during its run. And then in her retirement, Myrtle would appear in movies written by her grandson, Donna's son, Charles Griffith, sort of as like a favor, basically. Uh, She had already appeared in Bucket of Blood. Um, She's like the older landlady who goes to investigate. Okay. Actor Wally Campo, who plays Joe Fink and thus narrates the picture, had appeared in a number of previous Corman pictures up to this point, including Beast from Haunted Cave. And Charles Griffith himself plays a number of minor roles throughout the movie in a kind of like, oh yeah, this character's on screen for like, you know, two shots. Get get Chuck in here to do it. <laughs> um, most notably in the movie, uh, he is the voice of the man-eating plant audrey jr
0: not audrey Two.
1: no audrey Two is from the musical okay yeah in this movie the plant is called audrey jr an equally nonsense name for the plant but however if you've bought any version of the 1960 little shop of horrors on home video over the past 40 years the chances are that the name you've seen in big letters over the title was jack nicholson uh, who appears in one scene for like a few minutes? Okay. Uh, he plays the role that Bill Murray plays in the movie musical. Oh, I think I knew
0: this actually.
1: So, uh, Jack Nicholson is kind of a big deal. <laughs> I'm going to talk just a little bit about him.
0: Yeah, he'll be starring in a future Corman picture, right?
1: Yes, and a bunch of other horror movies after that. So, I'll have plenty chance of to- time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, But Jack Nicholson was born John Joseph Nicholson in 1937 in New Jersey. His mother was a 17-year-old showgirl uh, who performed under the name June Nielsen. And his father was either showman Donald Rose or maybe Nielsen's manager, Eddie King. Nobody really knows. Um, But June's parents, uh, John Joseph Nicholson and Ethel May Nicholson, took Jack in as a baby, Uh, and raised him as their own because June was an unmarried 17-year-old showgirl. And he thought that his mother was his older sister until 1974, which was 11 years after June had passed away. Okay. In high school, he was the class clown, and in 1954, he was in detention every day for a year.
0: That tracks with what I know of Jack Nicholson. (laughs)
1: He joined the National Guard in 1957 and served for two years, uh, which he did in order to avoid the draft. Nicholson moved out to California to visit his show business sister and decided that he wanted to be an actor. His film debut was in 1958 in the title role of the teen exploitation film The Crybaby Killer, which was produced by Roger Corman. He was 21 years old at the time. And it was the first film Corman had ever produced that failed to make a profit. And so Corman did not want Jack Nicholson in The Passionate People Eater, uh, but he kind of had to take him because they were making this movie in two days and they needed, you know, to take who was willing to be in it, right? They needed bodies. Yes. So knowing this, Nicholson decided that he needed to play his character very over the top. Very quirky, very funny in order to kind of justify the chance Corman was taking on him. And so he ends up creating one of the most memorable characters in the whole movie, despite, I think, being on screen for like two minutes.
0: I mean, that can work. Um, He's lucky that it didn't pigeonhole him into a character actor, though. You know...
1: Or did it? The thing is, is like Jack Nicholson is a character actor. He's just a character actor who played lead roles.
0: Yeah, that's fair.
1: Now, while there was some on-set ad-libbing by Dick Miller, Mel Wells, and Charles Griffith, who felt it was fine if he ad-libbed because he wrote the thing, the picture had a 98-page script by Charles Griffith that was like done by the time they started shooting and was pretty strictly kept to over the two-day shoot. Um, However, the ending of Nicholson's scene in the movie was never actually shot. Um, He went in and they had all the sets pre-lit and everything like ready to go. Like everything was like clockwork on this shoot. And while shooting the scene um, where he is at this dentist's office, a piece of rented dental machinery started to tip over. And without yelling cut, Roger Corman rushed forward Grabbed the falling machine and saved it. Decided that that machine getting damaged wasn't worth more shooting on this set. Declared that that set was a wrap for the day. Let's move on. And that's why uh, Jack Nicholson's scene like fades to black in the middle of a shot in the movie. Okay. Nicholson's performance must have won. Corman over because from that point on he continued using Jack Nicholson very regularly and eventually Jack Nicholson became one of the most lauded performers of his generation but that's that's a story for another time. So to shoot the picture as quickly as possible Corman used the three camera setup of sitcoms where you have a basically evenly lit pre-lit set Uh, that, you know, only has three walls and you set up three cameras, you know, one shooting sort of across from the left and one from across from the right and one sort of straight on in order to catch like all of the angles you need in a minimum number of takes. The budget for the shoot was approximately $30,000. By 9am on the first day, uh, the first AD told Corman he was already behind schedule Yeah. Um, They shot like all day, all night, all day. And then once shooting was complete on the sets, Griffith and Wells were sent out to shoot all of the exterior shots over two more weekends for $1,100.
0: So saying that this was shot in a weekend is a bit of a misnomer. Yes. Because they still did location shooting. So almost like second unit shooting.
1: Yeah. Principal photography was done in two days um all the exteriors were done on these extra shoots which corman didn't go to so yeah it was very much a second unit um and they shot on location in the la neighborhood of skid row uh, which is like downtown la was very well known then and now for its large homeless population and so what griffith and wells did was like They went around and used like real homeless people and real neighborhood children. Basically, they would get to a spot and just whoever happened to be there, they would pay them like five to ten cents and be like, cool, you're in the movie now.
0: Well, you know, at least they paid them Mm -hmm. because they didn't legally have to.
1: Sure. The movie's musical score is just a re-edited version of the music from Bucket of Blood. I mean, it was good. Sure. And uh, yeah, the picture was edited, you know, very quickly. Um, There's a really famous story of, like, when they were editing, they realized that, like, there were two shots that just they couldn't cut between. Like, they needed to go from shot A to shot B, but going directly, like, wouldn't work. They needed something to transition, and they didn't have something to transition. So the editor just threw in a shot of the moon. And uh, years and years later after the movie had become, like, the big cult classic that it is, uh, Charles Griffith, like, went to that editor and showed him this article in, like, a cinema magazine kind of thing that was, like, an eight-page article on the symbolism of the moon in Little Shop of Horrors.
0: That's awesome. I love when, like... (laughs) I mean, my entire degree was basically that of like Mm. trying to glean meaning from something that could have not even been done for that kind of purpose. Like this was done for a um, pragmatic Mm -hmm. purpose, but it still imparts meaning, which is a valid like interpretation. But it's just it's funny how texts can be like that.
1: Yeah. After the film was completed, uh, Corman kind of struggled for a while to find a distributor. AIP felt that the movie's humor could be taken as anti-Semitic, and so they kind of wanted to stay away from it. And ultimately, Corman spent like nine months shopping the movie around for a distributor, which is the reason why it's released after uh, Follow the House of Usher, although it was shot before. Ultimately, Corman made the decision to release it himself through his own company, Film Group. And so it was Film Group who submitted the film to be played at the 1960 Cannes Film Festival.
0: This movie went to Cannes? Yes. Have we ever seen a movie that's been to
1: Cannes before? I don't know. Maybe La Diabolique? Maybe. I think maybe. But after that, AIP agreed to pick it up for distribution.
0: They were like, oh, the French saw it? Okay, the Americans can see it now. Yes.
1: Uh, And they programmed it as the B picture to their release of Mario Bava's Black Sunday. Okay. Now, AIP basically did no marketing for Little Shop of Horrors. Um, It's basically like a little box on the, like... Black Sunday poster that's like added attraction little shop of horrors and that's about it. Um but the success of Black Sunday meant that a lot of people saw Little Shop of Horrors and it got this like really positive word of mouth and so eventually uh AIP like produced posters for Little Shop of Horrors as it got re-released um over the years and so those posters have like all these critics quotes on it about how funny it is nicholson remembers going into like um a screening of the movie and struggling to hear the dialogue because the audience was laughing so hard uh he's
0: like keep it down i can't hear myself
1: yeah basically he 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 said he felt embarrassed because nothing he had ever done in his life had gotten that positive a reaction before
0: Why would he be embarrassed about that?
1: Because like when you're used to just getting nothing but negative attention your whole life, I think positive attention can feel like, oh, who me? Mm. Variety gave the film a rave review. Uh, They said that the performances were delightfully over the top um, and declared that horticulturalists and vegetarians would love this movie. And the picture's popularity grew uh, as it was shown on TV through the 1960s and 70s. So it it really, you know, developed this kind of organic cult movie appeal. I like
0: that it was organic.
1: However, uh, like a lot of his movies from this period, Corman neglected to copyright Little Shop of Horrors because he believed it had little money-making potential past its original run and so for this reason the movie has been a staple of low quality home video releases for decades
0: so when they made the musical they wouldn't have to pay like licensing or
1: anything so um the musical adaptation was created in 1982 uh it was a off-broadway show by howard ashman and alan menken who would go on to kind of be the guys who did like disney yeah the disney renaissance movies And, you know, the success of the off-Broadway version would lead to uh, the famous film adaptation of that musical in 1986 by Frank Oz. The thing is, the movie's not copyrighted. So that means that anyone can, like, show or copy the movie. But, like, the premise, the screenplay, is still protected by copyright. Ah, okay. Until
0: the guy dies.
1: Yeah, Yeah, not because of, like it having been copywritten or not, but just due to the way that like intellectual property law works. Um At first, the musical only paid royalties to Roger Corman. Like they went to Roger Corman and they were like, hey, can we make Little Shop of Horrors a musical for some dough? And Roger Corman was like, yeah, I always like money. Um, <laughs> and then after the musical came out, was this big hit. Charles Griffith was like, It was my idea. I wrote the script. So he sued and they ended up rewarding him like one fourth of royalties or something like that. Okay. Yeah. And basically now like the musical has like totally eclipsed the original in popularity. Um, Largely just because of like a, I think a generational thing. Like my parents know this movie really well um, because they were like, you know kids when this was being shown on TV all the time they were the generation that this was the cult movie for and then now like it's you know we're a couple generations later and so the 80s movie is the thing people have the nostalgia for right like that's how the cycle has gone um they announced a remake in 2019 that was going to be like a pure horror movie um not a musical uh but that basically stalled out like COVID happened. And so they never shot it and the project stalled out. And now it's not really happening anymore.
0: Okay, well, that's too bad. But I am excited to see this. How are we watching it?
1: Well, Sarah, as I kind of alluded to, there's a lot of different releases of Little Shop of Horrors out there. Um, Online, you can find it on YouTube, you can find it on Canopy, you can find it on Tubi. Everyone's released it on DVD or VHS or Blu-ray at some point or another. Uh, I think... The best release on Blu-ray is probably Legend Films. Um, but the thing is, is Legend colorized the movie, which is like a easy way to get a copyright on your version of it. Um, and the black and white version is available on the Blu-ray release. But the default version of Little Shop of Horrors, if you're on YouTube or Amazon, is the colorized version. So you kind of have to hunt around for the black and white. Um, but it's on our YouTube playlist in black and white. Okay. And uh, if you watch it on, like, Canopy, it'll be black and white. And I think Tubi as well, because that's the public domain version, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you find the colorized version, but not a black and white version, you can just, like, change your TV settings.
1: I guess that's fair.
0: (laughs) Any movie can be black and white if you try hard enough. That's true. Uh, Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along. If you want to find our YouTube playlist, you can head to screamscenepodcast.com and you know, find it there. Uh, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss *The Little Shop of Horrors* from 1960, directed by Roger Corman.
1: See you on the other side, everybody. <laughs> Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Little Shop of Horrors from 1960, directed by Roger Corman. Sarah, what'd you think?
0: I think it was fine. Hmm. My first exposure, obviously, as has been said, was the musical. And I think it really improved upon what is here. I think what is here is fine and comedic and whatever, but uh, I don't think the comedy fully works on me. Mm. There were moments where I was like, huh, or had a grin or did a, like, you know, the kind of laugh, like huff, like, <laughs> sure. But like, meh. I don't know, nothing particularly special for me. What about for you?
1: Well, uh, as I mentioned, I grew up on this first and then saw the musical later uh, in life. I think I was like in elementary school when I watched this for the first time. And maybe I was like a little bit older, like junior high when I saw the musical. Um, I like this better, but I think part of that might be also the fact that especially when I was younger growing up and making my own movies and, and these kinds of things, the very like low budget, like let's just have fun and make a movie kind of um, atmosphere of this film was really charming to me. Mm. And the like immensely polished, extremely high budget, big, big Hollywood energy of the musical, like obviously isn't charming in the same way, right?
0: Yeah, it's charming in a musical way, not in... The way that you're describing here
1: yeah and so when that like diy thing is one of the things you like best about the property when that goes away it, it just like isn't as good but i think like neither of these takes are bad takes they're just like fair subjective opinions
0: yeah what's kind of nice is we have the two sides of the coin represented here. Yeah, yeah. uh, Which is nice. Um, It's nice when we have like different perspectives like that. Why don't I give the plot? For sure. And we can kind of dig in. Okay. Do you want to give the correction though of what you said about the moon?
1: Well, okay. So in the context setting, I mentioned like a shot of the moon. That's like a direct quote. Like, so in the film itself, it's not a shot of the moon. It's a shot of like the setting sun. Okay. But the anecdote that Charles Griffith tells about that is that it was a shot of the moon. So he's misremembering. Like I'm not misquoting, I'm not wrong, he's wrong and I'm just <laughs> correctly reporting his mistake.
0: Sure. I I do want to just point out that you are being very emphatic about I'm not wrong. That's right. The person who worked on the movie was wrong. That's right. Okay. So the movie is mainly focused on uh, the florist shop of Gravis Mushnik. Um, it's a floundering flower shop. He has two employees, Audrey and Seymour. Seymour has yet again messed up an order, and Mushnik is ready to fire him when Seymour says, Wait, I have a new flower that you might be interested in. Let me show it to you at least. Mushnik isn't particularly like interested in Interested in this, but a store patron played by Dick Miller um, says that, you know, if it's something like brand new, that could be a good marketing trick to get people in the door, so people buy flowers and you make money. So Mushnick is like, all right, bring in the flower, let me see. Seymour brings in the plant, says that it is named Audrey Jr. He made it by crossing two
1: different breeds. A butterscotch and a Venus flytrap i think is what he says
0: yeah but this plant is not doing super well but it's clearly like interesting and different um it looks pretty much exactly like what it does in the musical at this stage um where it's just like a big egg-like bud mm-hmm. with some leaves off of it mushnik gives him you know a week if he can make it like come if you he can heal it and, and have it be of interest, like maybe I won't fire you. So Seymour, you know, spends the whole night trying to take care of it and accidentally pokes his finger and some of that blood goes towards Audrey Jr. And Audrey Jr. starts to like eat it. Mm-hmm. So Seymour pokes the rest of his fingers, feeds the blood to the plant. And then when he comes back in the next morning, uh, the plant has doubled in size. And that marketing idea uh, is working. People are coming in, wanting to learn more about the plant. Mushnick is very happy with this, So he's like, Seymour, keep it going. It becomes clear that the plant needs more food quite frequently. Otherwise, it begins to wilt. That night, um, Seymour is looking after the plant. Uh, and it speaks. But the famous line of feed me. There's no line of feed me, Seymour, like there is in the musical. Um, which I don't know why I felt disappointed about, but whatever, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah. what, uh, is neat- it's, it's just feed me.
0: Yeah. And like, I'm starving, like all these kind of lines around. I
1: need food. My favorite thing about this is that I mentioned earlier, it's Charles Griffith doing the voice. It's also like not 80 yard. It's just him off camera, like yelling the lines. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh Seymour's like, I don't have any more blood for you. I need some for myself. And Audrey Jr.'s like, I don't care. <laughs> so Seymour's like, okay, let me go for a walk and think about what to do here. He goes for a walk and he goes towards uh the rail yard, sees a bottle nearby, and goes to throw some rocks at it to knock it down, and accidentally hits a guy who kind of stumbles around and then that guy gets hit by a train. So Seymour's like, oh fuck the logical thing to do is to gather up those body parts, put them in a bag and find a way to dispose of them. He can't find a way to dispose of them. So he makes his way back to the flower shop with these body parts. And he's like, I don't know what to do. And then Audrey jr. is like, feed me. I'm hungry. I smell food. Uh, So Seymour feeds the body parts to the plant. Meanwhile, Mushnick is out for dinner. He needs to come back to the store for money. He comes by and sees what Seymour is doing. And, you know, he kind of loses it a little bit. But his guilty conscience melts away when he sees in the next morning that the marketing has again really increased sales. And Audrey Jr.'s has also increased. It's much larger now.
1: And by this point, it's like the size of like car
0: <laughs> yeah it keeps like doubling it's like exponential seymour comes in that morning with a toothache um but before he can do anything about it mushnik corners him and he's like he doesn't let on that he knows that you know audrey jr eats people but he's kind of like it won't need to eat anymore right like what's going on and seymour's like no i don't think it'll need to eat anymore apparently venus fly traps only need to eat three times in their life which is not accurate at all <laughs> but he's like, yeah, I don't think it'll need to eat anymore. So Mushnik is like, great, sweet, go get your tooth figured out. Seymour goes to the dentist, um, whose order is the one that he messed up at the beginning of the movie. Um, Now this dentist is sadistic and, you know, is wanting to pull more teeth than is necessary. It also seems to kind of be implied that maybe he wants to get revenge on Seymour for messing up the plant order. Uh, Seymour kind of grabs the drill and they start dueling, Um, Because, remember, this is a comedy. And Seymour takes the drill and accidentally drills it into the dentist and kills him. Um, He has to find a way to dispose of the body, so he takes it to Audrey Jr. Now, the police have gotten involved. This is Sergeant Joe Fink and his officer, Frank Stooley. They are investigating the disappearances of a railway detective and the dentist. Um, They come to the florist shop to do some investigating at the same time as um, a representative of the Society of Silent Flower Observers comes in to see Audrey Jr. meet Seymour and says that the Society is going to give you an award for this amazing plant that you've um, put together. Audrey wants to go out on a date with Seymour. Everything seems to be coming up Seymour. Mushnik is like, yeah, you go on your date and I'll watch the plant tonight and make sure no one else dies because he knows that every time the plant doubles in size, someone has died. As he's watching the plant in the middle of the night, Mushnik gets held up by a robber.
1: Who I believe is played by Charles Griffith.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. And he manages to talk the robber into looking inside Audrey Jr. for where the money is hidden. And so that robber gets eaten. Audrey Jr. continues to grow in size. Um, The next night, Seymour is like, no, I'm not going to do your bidding anymore. I'm not going to feed you more people. And so Audrey Jr. hypnotizes him in a very silly way. Yeah, Uh (laughs) it's... it's it's I, totally just riffing off of the B horror movie idea of hypnotizing someone. Like, yes. I, it's it that was a moment that I enjoyed.
1: It's it's absolutely like a parody of how easy it is to hypnotize people to do your bidding if you're like a B movie villain because it's literally just Audrey Junior being like you're tired. Now you're asleep. Now you're awake again. You're under my command. All right, go get me food. Like <laughs>
0: Yeah. It's very fun. So Seymour goes out. He attracts the eye of a sex worker who has to basically convince Seymour into wanting to become a business partner, uh, to, a
1: customer. It, it really bears mentioning that like Seymour is, is an idiot, is an idiot. Like everyone in this movie is kind of an idiot. Seymour is an idiot to like a cartoonish degree. The whole scene with the sex worker is basically like cartoon humor like it's something out of like a looney tunes cartoon
0: They really felt like that especially the way that the sex worker will like go off one s- side of the screen and pop up on the other yeah, she's like, like
1: fucking wily coyote over here
0: yeah it was fun but uh she gets um through a roundabout way she gets knocked out and um seymour takes her to the plant he thinks that she's volunteered for it All right, it's the night of the awards ceremony and you know they're hoping for like the buds to open in time for the ceremony So everyone is here. The police are here because they have no more clues Uh, Seymour is here. His mom is here. Audrey's here All of the customers that we have seen and gotten to know throughout the course of the movie are here Suddenly the buds open and they all have the faces of the victims. Everyone kind of freaks out Um, Seymour is like, I, ah, oh no. And the police are like, Hey, why are you acting suspicious? And Seymour starts running. So the police and Mushnik go chasing after him. He loses the cops. And so Seymour comes back to the florist shop and he's like, damn it, Audrey jr. My life is ruined now. Thanks to you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to cut you up from the inside. So he takes a knife and he goes to go inside the main bud. We cut to, um, other people coming into the florist shop. His mom, Audrey, Mushnik, the cops, and suddenly a uh, smaller bud opens up and it has Seymour's face and we hear the voice of him saying, I didn't mean to do it or
1: something like I that. I didn't mean to. I
0: didn't mean to.
1: Which is what he says to like everything. in yeah. the movie.
0: Kind of like the uh, uh, family matters. Like, did I do that? Yeah. Um. Anyways, and then the movie ends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As I said at the top, I think the musical really improves and builds upon what we have here. What we have here works for like what it is for like a 1960 horror comedy, but it I feel like it's pretty set in its time. And I think also part of what makes it feel old um, is uh, its reliance on vaudeville, um, like the yeah, physical totally. comedy um, Audrey's speech, even, uh, she tends to mix up different words. Like at one point she says, she's so hungry. She could eat a hearse yeah. instead of a horse. All of the comedy here really feels vaudevillian.
1: Yeah, totally. So like none of the characters have depth. Um, there's no real attempts here at character arcs or characterization. No. And every character is a comic character. There's basically no straight characters here. Um, and everybody has, you know, a gimmick like Seymour is really dumb and he's also a klutz. So he has a lot of like slapstick humor around that. Um, Audrey is, you know, a well-meaning airhead basically is her gimmick. Uh, Seymour's mom is like this intense hypochondriac, Uh, Mushnick is you know the greedy businessman there's you know Dick Miller's character eats flowers Um, uh, there's some teens who want to make a float for the parade and they are like just very much like parodies of kind of like um, like
0: Beatles fans Beatles fans yeah because they keep going oh Seymour
1: yeah Uh, the cops as already mentioned are like beat for beat dragnet parodies
0: I did enjoy the cops yeah
1: they're they're very funny you know all of the characters are like this, right? And yeah, it is very vaudevillian. It's also, to use like a more modern, I mean, not very more modern, I suppose, by today's standards, but like a slightly more modern touchstone. It's got the vibe of like a long SCTV or SNL skit, which I guess makes sense because then the musical has Rick Moranis and Steve Martin. Yeah. Right? But that's the kind of feeling this has, you know, right from like the cheap sets to the fact that like every line is a joke. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's there's not really anything. And, And like that the jokes aren't, like it's not just the plant that is fantastical. You know, we pointed out that like the sex worker sequence feels like Looney Tunes, but like a lot of the movie is like that, right?
0: Yeah, we are clearly not set
1: in the real world. Right. You know, the dentist is a sadist uh he has the patient who's a masochist like everything's a a gag here and if you haven't seen this movie like the style of humor is very much an attempt I think at aping like a Jerry Lewis Mel Brooks style like if this movie had been an a picture and it was made like 10 years later Like you could see Jerry Lewis playing Seymour. You could see Mel Brooks playing Mushnick. Like that's the vibe those characters have, right? Um, Yeah, you can honestly with Seymour, like you can really see why they cast Rick Moranis.
0: Yeah, I think your uh, analogy of an SCTV or SNL skit is right on the money, um, particularly when those skits feel like they go on too long.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah you you said when we finished it that you you felt this was like a little tiresome
0: yeah the charm that you find in the diy low budget thing is there for me but it almost relies on that being the butt of the joke too much mm. to the point where i'm just like yeah i get it they're running around oh great we're running on tires okay i don't care yeah let's just fucking wrap up my guys. Like I just found it like a little tiresome. Um we're running between two different locations. And I think at that point in the movie it's like its climax. It is rightly so, I think, like assuming and relying on the comedy up to that point and in that sequence to kind of carry you through so you're along for the ride. But its charm had worn off on me by that point, so I found it tiresome. So it's tiresome without that buy-in. And an SNL skit that goes on too long, like, the people in the skit are probably having a good time, and that's why they're kind of extending it, and, like, they're really pushing it. But that kind of pushing the premise as, like, a comedic joke doesn't always work uh, for everyone. And for me, it doesn't work here.
1: Yeah, totally. I think you know, the critiques you have are very valid. The structure of the movie is very repetitive. Yeah. Um, Especially because other than like a change in joke in the sense of like, you know, the dentist is crazy and the sex worker is persistent and and so on, the basic structure of all the victims of Audrey Jr. is very similar in that like the storyline kind of goes out of its way to absolve Seymour and mushnik of like too much responsibility mm-hmm. for these people's deaths like the railway guy dies by accident the dentist c- kind of dies by accident in the sense that Seymour didn't mean to kill him but like it's manslaughter right
0: or se- self-defense but not like malicious murder
1: yeah and and that's the self-defense act uh part of it too yeah is like it's this guy kind of deserved it um And like the sex worker, they go out of their way to concoct kind of like a goofy um, chain of events to knock her out. The burglar obviously has like a he deserved it quality to it. And so seeing that repeat over and over definitely can be tiresome, especially if you're not like enjoying whatever the gag with the individual character each time is.
0: And the gag um, in between each night and each death is very similar of like the teen girls wanting the flowers for their float or oh no this lady has another relative who has died and needs flowers oh dick miller is coming for his lunch to eat some carnations yeah
1: the the scenes at the shop are basically the same they just sort of increase in intensity as things are going on i also agree with you that The ending's a little anticlimactic. Um, The running around after Seymour is is clearly like meant to have a kind of, not just like cartoon quality, but like...
0: A Benny Hill.
1: Yeah, hearkening back to like Keystone Cops kind of thing of them chasing him around in increasingly ridiculous situations. But then it kind of peters out because he loses them. And then like we have this thing of like he wants to attack Audrey Jr., and really i think it's this ending with seymour where the low budget finally
0: catches up to them yeah
1: becomes an issue rather than a um asset yeah because he grabs like a little kitchen knife and the mouth of audrey jr is open and he kind of climbs inside with it and he's like i'm gonna stab you and then it closes on him and then we cut to a new scene like sarah was describing earlier and so it doesn't you know have a lot of energy to it because the plant prop can't do much like it makes me think It
0: opens and closes yeah
1: like it makes me think of of bell lugosi in the water with the octopus that doesn't have the motor right like shake it around make it look like he's killing you
0: you know what i wanted Mm. when the robber goes in he drops his gun i wanted audrey jr to have the gun and pull the gun on seymour Mm Mm-hmm. And have that be the climax. How wild would it have been to see a plant wielding a gun?
1: Oh, yeah, totally. Like the fact that Audrey Jr. in this movie doesn't have like vines or anything where uh, it can manipulate stuff is a letdown. A letdown. But it's also like, you know, they, they shot this in a weekend. Like,
0: listen, I'm just saying I, that would have helped the climax. Yeah, yeah.
1: I'm saying like, I and I agree with you. It's like, I'm not faulting the movie for not being able to do things it couldn't do, but it is, like I said, it's where the budget catches up to them and makes it weaker. And the like ultimate ending where, you know, it eats Seymour and the butt opens and it's like, I didn't mean to, and like it, you know, that's fine. Like it has a very like Twilight Zone ending kind of feel, right? And I think that's probably what they're riffing on. Yeah. But like it's a little bit troublesome yeah because that final confrontation between Seymour and Audrey Jr is is so flaccid and also because like the movie had gone out of its way so much to absolve Seymour of responsibility that like the ironic O Henry ending where he gets his comeuppance also doesn't like feel right either and i think that also plays into another thing that can be a weakness of this movie Depending on what your level of buy in is, uh, which is because all of the characters are comic characters, few of the characters are like likable in any way.
0: Yeah, at no point um, is there a clear person who you feel like you want to root for. Mm -hmm. Because, like, I feel like what Rick Moranis manages to do is bring in a bit of charm you like him you want seymour to succeed you want him to get that white picket fence the seymour in this original version
1: he's a lot more pathetic
0: he's pathetic and you know you pity him and it's like oh sweet you like you want to be a botanist okay
1: he's also just too dumb for like his goals to it's like you you were never going to become a botanist like there's nothing the thing that's holding Seymour back in this movie is Seymour. And like, you know, he's so dumb that like his mom, who's a hypochondriac, like makes meals out of like medicine or patent medicines. And Seymour like literally has never had like real food. Like that's what we're like. That's the joke at one point. Like Audrey makes him a PB and J sandwich and he doesn't know what it is. And so it's like at that stage, you've made him like so dumb that, he, you know he's just yeah he's just an object of ridicule right yeah and even audrey like audrey's close to the most likable person but she's also like kind of so dumb that it's hard to empathize with her um
0: i will say that that is still a problem in the 80s mm-hmm. movie that's like a big problem i have with the 80s
1: movie like the most likable person might actually be dick miller's character who just like casually eats flowers
0: yeah i i really liked dick miller um i think mushnik is like the next closest in terms of like looking at our three main characters like
1: yeah even though he's this like a greedy businessman type he's got that kind of like oy vey, like um, again, what like, am I
0: in now? Yeah,
1: like, you know, quirk from Deep Space Nine kind of like thing where you, you, you know, you know, he's a scumbag, but you kind of like him.
0: Yeah, well, it was just like it brought in a little bit of a, a different flavor into the profile of this movie when right. Mushnik was dealing with his own conscience, right? right? Like, because Seymour is so dumb that it's almost like he doesn't have a.
1: a a conscience he kind of like knows what he's doing is bad but it's very much this like oh gee rick like kind of energy not
0: even not even it's a like oh did i do that did i murder someone oops Whereas mushnik is like uh this plant can't eat any more people i'm going to make sure it doesn't eat any more people oh fuck i'm being held up by a robber i guess into the plant right like it just felt a little bit more engaging
1: sure yeah like ultimately this thing is is very bound right yes
0: i will say as much as like this movie didn't quite do it for me i think everyone making the movie is fully dedicated oh yeah dick miller is literally eating flowers uh jonathan hayes is falling over backwards multiple times in the same shot. No one's treating this as a weekend shoot.
1: Mm-hmm. Everyone's clearly having a good time. And that's the thing that really makes, you know, again, like an SCTV or SNL bit work, right? But yes, it, the very like stage bound kind of quality of it is a weakness. Um, just the fact that it's long. I also think structurally, the thing I want to point out about the repetitiveness in the structure This is basically the same structure as Bucket of Blood.
0: Yeah, I kept thinking about Bucket of Blood, and I was like, why was that so working so well? Hmm. Whereas this one, I just did not have the
1: patience for it. So what's funny is, so I think Little Shop of Horrors is funnier than Bucket of Blood, but I do think Bucket of Blood's a better movie because it has character arcs. Yeah. And what's happening here is like this was written in, a day and shot in two days and so you can't like expect a lot out of it and so i think one of the shortcuts griffith uses is he basically uses bucket of blood as like a skeleton and then he's hanging the jokes on that and so there's not really the care put there towards like making the arcs land because it's just um, a scaffold for jokes right but like the idea of like, okay, we have a setting, we have kind of like a dweeby character nobody likes, we have the girl he has the hots for, we have kind of like the owner of the place where he hangs out who starts to take advantage of him once he starts to become like a little famous for something, but the thing that's making him famous that's making people like him is something where he has to keep killing people to make it happen, and we end with like a weird chase sequence that isn't very good, right? Like it's, yeah. it's the same movie.
0: It is. The chase sequence in Bucket of Blood really worked, though. Yes. Because it was like taking a lot of visual inspiration from the third man. And as you said, in The Little Shop of Horrors, they were taking inspiration from Keystone Cops.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Which um, is dated and won't always land for
1: the right people. The Dragnet parody is, like, bang on, though.
0: (laughs) It was good. (laughs) The the mom talks to one of the detectives and is like, let me see your tongue. And she's like, oh, oh no, do you know what you have? And he's like, only the facts.
1: Yeah. And I was like, that's the the two cops were good. They're very good. Um, Also, like, I just have to point out that, like, all the babes in this movie are very cute. The actress who plays Audrey is very cute. The, the woman who's like the head of the flower society that's going to give him the trophy is very cute. Like,
0: She was distractingly beautiful,
1: Yeah, I will say. <laughs> yeah, she's, like, she looks like Jerry Ryan. Um, yeah, <laughs> no, totally. Um, so like, you know, there's a lot of nice eye candy uh, in that regard. Um, I think something that would really help this movie out a lot and and maybe help the repetitive feeling that you were having with it the music is bad.
0: The music is so bad. It's still taking inspiration from like the beat stuff because it is just like it's reworking the, yeah. of Bucket of Blood. If I really wish they had taken some time and some money to make an original score. Yeah. Even if it was still inspired by like beatnik stuff, like it just it does not work for this movie. It
1: makes the chases feel like well unfortunately long i think the problem is is that like the bucket of blood music bucket of blood like it ranked like we ranked it right like it's a horror comedy but it sort of got one foot in still taking it seriously and like little shop of horrors does not at all like little shop of horrors is a cartoon and so like those chase sequences needed much more like fun cartoony jokey music rather than reusing the chase sequence music from bucket of blood because by the time we're doing the chase in bucket of blood like the walls have closed in around walter paisley and like harsh reality has come crashing down on his like imaginary make-believe world um and you know things get dark whereas for the for little shop of horror's like they do a bit where like Mushnick goes to like trip Seymour and Seymour, who's tripped over everything, all movie, like leaps over his foot. He's getting chased by cops who are parodies of the guys from like Dragnet. Like it, He hides in a toilet. Right.
0: Like, like it's Scooby-Doo. Yes.
1: I mean, yeah, absolutely. It needs to have different music. And I think if, if this movie had some music that was unique to it, I think it absolutely would have um, improved the vibes of it (laughs) improve. improve the viewing experience yeah yeah totally totally but yeah i really like this movie um and i will say you know coming back to what i said at the top about like the polish of the movie musical versus this i find this often with movie comedies i really like sketch comedy i really like sctv i really like snl Both of those shows have their ups and downs, but often when those characters get adapted to like a film, they lose something. And I think part of what it is, is, when you're shooting something on a tight schedule, you know, week to week for TV or in a weekend for this, the jokes have a kind of like immediacy to them that gets lost when you're doing something a lot more um coordinated, like a big budget film. And that was something I liked here is just the sense that like the jokes feel like everyone's just riffing off each other, even though I know that it's like a carefully written script.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe not
1: carefully, but definitely a <laughs> written script. A written script. Yes, yeah, sorry, yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, folks, um, as this is horror adjacent, we will not be ranking it. But if you do want to see the other horror adjacent episodes, you can find the full list of them on our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. You can also find links to other episodes that we may have mentioned, as well as our appeals box if you would like to contest uh, the ranking of any previous movie or uh, want to um, alert us if there's something about the the little shop of horrors that uh, you wanted us to mention and we just didn't get to it. You can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com if you don't want to message us through Tumblr.
1: Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. You can leave the show a rating or a review. You can help the show out by letting people know about it uh, online or in person. And we also really appreciate it if you head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can become a patron of the night and support us for as little as a dollar a month. You get access to a huge archive of past bonus content, including the six-hour dread rpg actual play special that we did for halloween which is really cool and i recommend you check it out um at the five dollar level you get access to regular bonus audio ten dollar level gets access to a bunch of like writing that sarah and i have done there's a lot of cool goodies over on patreon.com slash scream scene podcast
0: uh well ben what are we watching next week
1: well we're back to horror Like, real horror. Um, But we are staying in the low-budget American sort of B-movie realm. Uh, We're looking at a movie from director Bert I. Gordon. Oh. And we we haven't really covered a lot of his stuff on the show because his gimmick was... Thing big. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Like taking a tarantula and making it a giant tarantula or a man or a woman and making them really like giant or making things small he could do that too all basically the same way just by like shooting the regular thing on a blue screen and optically printing it into a shot a lot of his movies are therefore like you know drive-in monster movies but they're not really horror this film is more of like a a gothic horror ghost story thing, I think. Um, it's very different from his usual uh, affair. It's called Tormented. Is the ghost big? I don't think so. Oh. So that's why I'm like, huh. Huh. Well, we will
0: see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.